You're listening to Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurier's Institute Premier Public Policy Podcast. My name is Ayman Lau, and I'm the Communications Officer with the Institute. And today I'm joined by MLI Senior Fellow Marcus Koga to discuss his latest initiative, DisinfoWatch. So welcome to the podcast, Marcus. Thanks for having me on, Ayman. All right, so let's start with maybe a history of disinformation in Canada and when did it start becoming a prominent issue within the Canadian landscape? Despite disinformation being a new issue in the context of digital and social media, and the intensity with which we've been bombarded by it over the past half decade, foreign disinformation propaganda isn't a new thing. Disinformation propaganda and conspiracy theories have been tools used by autocrats and dictators for ages. The Bolsheviks and Nazis were prolific at weaponizing information against opponents and, of course, entire minorities. Stalin, of course, was the first foreign leader to pioneer the use of deepfakes when he airbrushed his adversaries out of photos, altering them to change histories. He and his fellow Soviets took this a step further during the Cold War, engaging in mass disinformation, labeling the millions of refugees who fled Soviet terror in the post-Cold War era as Nazi collaborators, and anyone who resisted or criticized the Soviets, including those here in Canada, as Nazis or fascists a practice that the Putin regime has actually revived over the past decade and has been adopted by the far left and Russian nationalist groups that support the Kremlin right here in Canada. The most famous instance of Soviet Cold War disinformation occurred in the 1980s. It was known as Operation Infection. In the early 1980s, the Soviets planted a story in a Soviet-aligned newspaper in India that claimed that the virus that causes AIDS was developed in a U.S. bioweapons lab in Fort Detrick, Maryland. And this is a conspiracy that's been more recently recycled by the Russian and Chinese governments in the context of COVID. The story in the Indian newspaper was cited a few months later in a Soviet medical journal which was in turn quoted in Western media a few months after that. The story eventually migrated its way through the U.S. Main Street media and into the CBS Evening News with Dan Rather in 1983 and made national headlines. And of course, Canadians were exposed to all of this. And the digital media environment that we live in today has made operations like the one that I just described that much easier to execute. And their spread today can happen in minutes instead of months and years. Vladimir Putin, as a KGB officer who engaged in developing disinformation in the Cold War, has now fully embraced information warfare as a means of advancing his regime's interests both domestically in Russia and around the world. Putin's primary goal and the primary geopolitical goal is the restoration of Russia's Soviet air power and the breakdown of Western alliances like NATO that defend them. Putin weaponizes disinformation and propaganda to break down these alliances by turning the members against one another. He also seeks to erode the trust that Western societies have towards their elected officials and media in order to polarize them and break down the cohesion of societies, including right here in Canada. And sadly, it seems to be working and it's costing him very, very little. 
Now, in 2016, the Russian Internet Research Agency, also known as the St. Petersburg Troll Factory, was able to disrupt and undermine the U.S. democratic system, the elections, of course, the U.S. presidential elections, for the cost of less than a Russian army tank. Now, in, in Canada, we discovered a few weeks ago at DisinfoWatch that Putin's Internet Research Agency, the same one that attacked the U.S. in 2016, attacked our own officials, including Stephen Harper, Christopher Freeland, and Justin Trudeau over the past years in some recently released tweets that were deleted by Twitter. Christopher Freeland was also the subject of a highly orchestrated disinformation campaign in 2017 when she was named foreign minister. And while Canada was in the midst of debating Magnitsky legislation. And this is legislation, the sanctioning legislation that targets Russian human rights and foreign human rights abusers, which Vladimir Putin was very much opposed to. Today, we have Russia and Sputnik continuing to spread Russian government disinformation in Canada, as well as a network of conspiracy theory websites that are aligned with Moscow, Beijing, and Tehran and other dictatorial regimes, many of whom were outlined in a recent State Department report called The Pillars of Russian Disinformation. One of those websites is in Montreal. It's called Global Research. China, in this context, has been much less sophisticated in its disinformation operations, but it's learning from Russia, and it's using COVID as a vector for its attacks. The more serious problem is that the Canadian government has really sort of been unable to address or unwilling to address the problem of disinformation in the past and is only now starting to wake up to the warnings from foreign examples and the repeated ongoing warnings from our own intelligence communities. So you know, that's a brief history of where disinformation has come from and how it's affecting us now. So then what inspired you to start DisinfoWatch? Being on the front lines of fighting for human rights, raising awareness of disinformation, I've been working with Russian civil society organizations and leaders since around 2008-2009. People like Boris Nemtsov, who of course was assassinated just outside of the Kremlin in 2015. He was a Russian opposition leader. People like Vladimir Karamurza, Gary Kasparov, Bill Browder. I've been working with them to raise awareness of their cause for democratic Russia and, and to support human rights in Russia for over a decade. And so during that time, I have seen how civil society leaders like those people have been targeted by disinformation and those who su support them. Having worked on the Magnitsky campaign, for example, in Canada, the Russian embassy in Canada threw everything they had, those of us who were advocating for Magnitsky sanctions. And these are, of course, legislation and sanctions that specifically target international and then you know, Russian human rights abusers and corrupt officials. And it's named after Sergei Magnitsky, who was a Russian anti-corruption activist and campaigner. The amount of disinformation that was targeted against us was incredible. Um, there's a very good example of that in 2017, 2018, when then Foreign Minister Christopher Freeland became the Foreign Minister. There was an incredibly intense campaign targeting her in efforts to discredit her and, and her support for the legislation, whereby they dug into the history of her family and found that her grandfather who 
was an editor at a Nazi-occupied newspaper. They claimed that he was a Nazi supporter. And whether that's true or not is sort of not immaterial when it comes to Christian Freeland, because they used Christian Freeland's grandfather to try and paint Christian Freeland as a whitewasher of Nazi crimes. The unfortunate part of that disinformation campaign that originated in Moscow, in Russia, and was promoted by the Russian embassy in Ottawa, it trickled into our mainstream media as well. Seeing that intense and vicious disinformation, I tried to look into the sources of that disinformation, and and it struck me that we were doing very little as far as civil society is concerned in Canada and as a government to defend ourselves against disinformation, and then that we're, we were quite vulnerable against disinformation. So seeing, the again, the intensification of Russian disinformation and Chinese disinformation in the context of certainly the 2016 presidential election, in the 2015 election here in Canada, and now certainly with COVID, the need for a platform to monitor and expose disinformation that targets Canada, it was something that was needed. And so thankfully, with MLI and colleagues like yourself, uh, we've been able to create this platform that actively does monitor and expose disinformation in hopes of raising awareness amongst Canadians, Canadian media and elected officials about the threats and these sorts of narratives when they emerge in order to build greater resilience against them and just simply awareness of what those narratives look like. Yeah, and I noticed personally that there seems to be a a dearth in resources, time, and even attention on the disinformation landscape in Canada. Could you give us an idea of what it looks like? So that's a good question. What is the current disinformation landscape like in Canada? Well, in a word, it's chaotic, it's foggy, and the overall information environment is really difficult for most of us in Canada to navigate. And this was even before the pandemic. The pandemic and COVID have really only made it worse. On social media, most of us are being constantly bombarded with messages about cures, causes of COVID, and conflicting information about lockdowns and health protocols. And for those of us who aren't trained to spot or question the deluge of false narratives that are being fired at us like a fire hose on social media, there's an incredible amount of confusion. And what's worse is that malign foreign actors and domestic extremists are taking advantage of this confusion and the raw emotions that COVID has caused. They try to monetize them through clicks to their website and malign foreign actors are trying to further divide us by pushing these narratives to polarize us. And that includes some extremist domestic actors as well. Now, much of this problem lies in the fact that as a nation, we haven't developed a strategy to ensure that Canadians are aware and able to spot disinformation. Polls have shown that over 70% of Canadians receive most of their news on social media platforms, and most of this is primarily happening on Facebook. For many Canadians, like boomers, including my own parents, they still consume news in a way that's rooted in just a sort of a blanket trust for information that's published. In the 1980s, they'd go to the newsstand. They'd buy a newspaper like the Star, Globe, or the Sun, and they trust the information that they read in it, just like they did with radio and television. They trusted these sources because they had editorial policies, they had correction policies, and of course they had professional journalists working for them who checked the facts that they were publishing before they were published. And all of these outlets still do that, and they really should be trusted. But sadly, when my parents go on to social media, 
they take that same level of trust and apply it to the headlines that are being shared by some of their friends and, and others, many of whom they just don't check the source or the claims being made in the stories that they're sharing. And of course, again, the pandemic has made the situation much worse. I think that everyone can recall a friend on Facebook sharing a strange COVID remedy last year. My favorite personally was an Estonian cure that suggested smearing your body with a mixture of goose fat and Coca-Cola and then consuming copious amounts of vitamin C to keep COVID away. And, and although these, these were sort of funny and strange, over the past year, those same sorts of narratives by many of those same people that I've been seeing have been transformed. Those narratives have transformed into more sort of angrier and far more sinister claims as the pandemic is wearing on. And so now we're seeing fairly dangerous anti-mask, anti-lockdown, and anti-vaccination narratives proliferating all over the place. And one of the big problems is that they're being supported by pretty high-profile celebrity individuals like Robert Kennedy Jr. All of us saw some of the claims that Donald Trump was supporting. And certainly here in Canada, we've seen some Ontario MPPs and MPs supporting some of these narratives and lending legitimacy to them. It's when elected officials attack our health protocols uh, and some of these masking and the, the lockdowns, not only does that put people at risk of contracting COVID, but that also erodes trust in our elected officials in general, and certainly our health officials and our governments at a time when we need to really be working together. The same conspiracy theorists who are promoting anti-mask narratives are frankly also advancing disinformation about our elected officials. We spotted at DisinfoWatch one such Twitter account last year that was promoting conspiracies during the first lockdown about Justin Trudeau being under house arrest and that Christopher Freeland had been actually working surreptitiously with George Soros and Bill Gates to spread COVID to impose a new world order on Canadians. You know, it'd be one thing if such narratives were being pushed by marginal sort of fringe accounts, but we're talking about Twitter accounts and Facebook groups that feature tens of thousands of users, sometimes hundreds of thousands of users, which those narratives are then spread to hundreds of thousands more, sometimes millions. So, you know, you ask, what's the Canadian information environment like? Well, quite frankly, it's just a complete and utter mess at the moment. COVID has also unmasked something that was interesting to watch, terrifying to watch as well. It's how foreign and domestic disinformation interplay with each other. We saw on January 6th, there was riots at the Capitol Hill, and that seemed to be born out of both domestic and foreign disinformation as well. I'm curious, what are your thoughts surrounding how the increasing problem of foreign and domestic uh, disinformation? That's a great question. This is something I warned about a few years ago in a paper that I wrote for MLI. It was called Stemming the Virus about foreign disinformation. And this was about three or four years ago. My warning was that if we're not careful, conspiracy theories, disinformation, these sorts of narratives would start growing organically. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So where we look back again to 2014, the occupation of Crimea, 2016, the US presidential election, you had foreign actors, primarily Russia at the time, developing narratives, even going back to the Operation Infection that I mentioned earlier in 1980, they were developing these narratives and finding ways to push them into the mainstream media in order to destabilize this, polarize, etc. We're not seeing that as much now. I don't think that foreign governments have to put as much effort into, or certainly the Russian government doesn't need to put as much effort into it, because we're growing these narratives 
organically, domestically. Uh, so COVID has produced fertile ground for this, especially when it comes to conspiracy theory, theories, far-right, anti-authoritarian narratives, libertarian narratives and such. They're all growing simply on their own. And where foreign governments come into play with this is that they pick up on some of these narratives and they amplify them. So going back to the point about Fort Detrick and the origin of the AIDS virus, that same narrative has appeared early on last year during the pandemic, where we saw Russian actors, not necessarily government sponsored, but certainly government aligned platforms, certain uh, extremist Russian far right uh, members of parliament started promoting this narrative that Perhaps COVID was developed in the same laboratory, Fort Detrick in Maryland, by the U.S. government. That narrative was then, of course, picked up by Chinese state actors in the Chinese foreign ministry and promoted around the world. And so the problem is, is that when you have average Canadians who are seeing and hearing these sorts of narratives, especially when they're promoted by representatives of governments, they start believing them. And other conspiracy theorists use them to legitimize their own views. And once you start feeding in foreign actors, foreign government officials into these conspiracy theories, that's when these narratives spiral out of control. So a lot of, that's a lot of what we're seeing right now, especially with regards to COVID. Anti-mask narratives, certainly anti-vax narratives have been uh, dominant throughout all these conspiracy theory narratives, supported by Unfortunately, it's very well-known either public officials or uh, people with high public profiles like Robert Kennedy Jr. He's been a vocal anti-vax supporter, anti-mask, anti-lockdown supporter. And when you have voices like that supporting these conspiracy theorists, these extremists, and you have foreign governments that are amplifying them, it causes a situation that's deeply problematic and is only getting worse. And I think a lot of what we're seeing right now, that one of the most terrifying things is these conspiracy theories and these movements that are questioning the authority of our elected officials, of our health officials, and the regulations that we've put in place. Because if we stop following the rules, our society breaks down. And that, unfortunately, is one of the aims of foreign disinformation, is that breakdown of cohesion within our societies and the trust within them. Yeah. And I also wanted to maybe touch on something that DisinfoWatch has been tracking, but specifically on how foreign governments have capitalized on conspiracy theories. I am thinking of one incident in which to deflect blame, it wasn't particularly too successful, I think, but in order to deflect blame, the Chinese government started promoting narratives of the origins of the COVID virus. This one stating that I believe it was originating from New Zealand on some frozen packaging things like that. So I'm just curious, what other examples do you have that you've seen recently? The list is quite frankly endless. The origin theories are important ones. The Chinese government right now is feeling threatened because there are questions about the origins of the, of the virus. We could push aside any questions about the origin. We know that it originated somewhere in the vicinity of Wuhan. How it happened, who knows? But let's just assume that it was by mistake. I mean, these things happen. The problem is that the Chinese government engaged in obfuscation, in suppressing information about it early on. There have been plenty of studies and reports stating that had China acted earlier, two weeks to three weeks earlier, the 
overall impact of this virus would have been reduced by upwards of 80 to 90 percent. And so that's a problem because I think that China clearly recognizes that once we're through this, there will be a reckoning. And if they truly are found to have suppressed that information, then they're going to be in real trouble. And so they've actively engaged in these sorts of narratives, like you say, the questions about the origin of the virus in order to deflect any sort of blame. The Chinese government has also used COVID as an opportunity to promote itself. I mean, on the other end, right? Instead, it's promoted through its mask diplomacy through its vaccine diplomacy. It has tried to use its vaccine in order to gain influence as well. So that's not necessarily disinformation, but it's a form of propaganda that they engage in. But some of the more sinister narratives that we've been seeing, and these aren't necessarily linked to the Chinese government or the Russian government, but they are being amplified by accounts that support and are aligned with them, are narratives about our own elected officials. There was one narrative that was being promoted about six months ago, eight months ago, during the first lockdown, up to a year ago, that suggested that Justin Trudeau was not leaving his home because he was actually under house arrest. And there were these photos of his pant legs where these conspiracy theorists were claiming that he had an ankle bracelet around his leg. These sorts of narratives, the intent is to break down trust in our elected officials. And I'm not just talking about marginal little fringe groups that are promoting these. These are you know, Twitter accounts and such that we're tracking that have tens of thousands of users and the tweets are being promoted to tens of thousands of other, if not hundreds of thousands of users. So they're not just marginal groups. These narratives are having a significant impact. And just before we started chatting on this podcast, I took a look at one of our monitoring platforms through CrowdTangle. The narratives about the current government and the anti-lockdown narratives, they truly are vicious. They specifically attack our elected officials, their credibility, their policies. It's deeply polarizing, I think, for our society to see these sorts of narratives published. And we need to take greater care in addressing them and building greater awareness and resilience against those narratives in order to support our democracy in, in general. It's probably fair to say that you think this is an urgent and pressing issue to address. What worries you the most about disinformation today and in the future and the evolution of disinformation? One particular note for me is I'm starting to notice foreign governments are capitalizing on social justice language and not using it in good faith. For example, we've seen this with the Chinese government as they retaliate against sanctions in Xinjiang and for the genocide of the Uyghurs and other ethnic nationalities. But they've learned to capitalize on social justice language in order to deflect any blame. What worries you most about the space? That's a great point. And we've seen the Russian government do this for decades already, using that same sort of language, certainly accusing anyone that's critical of Russian government action as being Russophobic, trying to suppress Russia itself. And they do this very effectively. I think that certainly in the Russian context, I think Canada has been slow to react because we are sensitive to that sort of language. We don't want to be seen as as marginalizing anyone's voice, and rightly so. But as you've mentioned, these foreign governments have learned. They understand that Canadians are sensitive to these sorts of issues, and they'll use those sorts of tactics, they'll use those sorts of terms against us in effort to silence critics. I've been, personally, because of my work on Russian 
human rights and certainly disinformation. I mean, I've been targeted with that same sort of language most recently by a far left Canadian outlet uh, about two weeks ago. And a lot of our elected officials get hit with the same sort of narratives. You know, I mentioned Christian Freeland earlier. She's constantly being labeled as a, as a Russophobe by the Russian embassy. And, you know, the list goes on. Anyone who questions the Russian government's actions in Canada is labeled with this. But you asked me what concerns me the most as far as what I'm seeing. It is the polarization. It's the rise of these conspiracy theorists those narratives are becoming dominant. Like I said, the story about Justin Trudeau being under house arrest. I mean, these sorts of narratives have massive audiences and they are only growing. These foreign governments, what they're doing is they're creating sock puppet accounts. These are fake accounts in St. Petersburg at the Troll Factory or in Beijing. They are amplifying these and growing these narratives and the audience for them. And those narratives really do threaten the cohesion of our society, the trust that we have in each other, the trust that we have in our media, in our elected officials. And certainly in the Russian case, a lot of these narratives are intended to uh, break down our alliances on a geopolitical level as well. Thankfully, Joe Biden is actively working to rebuild that cohesion when it comes to our transatlantic alliances. But domestically, I think we're in real trouble. And we need to do much more work in so far as building resilience against it. So this means ensuring that we have literacy, pro digital media literacy programs in place, especially for youth. We should be looking to countries like Finland, Estonia, Sweden, Taiwan, who are really doing a great job in teaching kids at an early age how to identify disinformation, misinformation, to understand the difference between facts and opinion. And we need to start doing this as well. And we need to start doing this on a broader, more systematic level. The federal government has thrown some funding into doing this, but I think it's sort of ad hoc and piecemeal. And you have a number of different organizations working for the same cause, but no one is really doing it very effectively. We need a broader national strategy when it comes to this. And then there's, of course, the deterrence side. I mentioned early on that the cost of doing this, if we look at the 2016 US presidential election, Russia's cost in undermining US democracy was next to nothing. It was peanuts. And we need to start thinking about introducing consequences for this sort of behavior. If there's no consequence, there's no reason why Russia or China would stop using disinformation and propaganda against us. So whether this is placing sanctions on individuals involved with, in the Russian context, the Internet Research Agency, this is the St. Petersburg Troll Factory, that it has been found to be responsible for the Russian interference in the 2016 election, creating a foreign registry to make sure that the crooked Canadian former officials, former diplomats, academics, who actively support these sorts of those regimes through the amplification and legitimization of their narratives, making sure that Canadian media, Canadians in general, know who these people are when they are speaking for those governments and promoting and advocating for their interests, making sure that those sorts of measures are in place. That's really important. And we haven't done that yet. But there are lots of examples, like I mentioned, that we could be following. And unfortunately, we're just not doing it yet. Well, that was a fascinating conversation. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Simon.